In the novel Points of Origin, fictional arsonist Aaron Stiles set a series of fires near an arson investigator's conference. Now, he's back at home waiting to hear about those fires on the local news. Aaron reached over and turned on the radio, hoping for any word on his fires. The lack of coverage started him smoldering. He was upset at the lack of recognition for his successes. A gust of wind broke his trance and he turned to look out his bedroom window to the San Gabriel Mountains to the north. A wall of flame entered Aaron's mind as he looked. Aaron knew he would be setting brush fires today. At 7.35, he was in his car heading west on the foothill freeway. The canyon was already in the shadows and its steep sides were covered with dry grass and shrubs. Aaron knew he would have no problem finding a good location to start a fire as he drove and simply lit a device before finding what he wanted. He tossed the device out the window, watching it as it hit the upper stems of the wheat-like grass. There was a quick shower of sparks as the ash shattered at contact. The device tumbled down the stems to nestle in the tangled mass of straw. Aaron smiled as he saw a thin line of smoke curling up from the device's resting place. He reveled at the quiet area that would be roaring with activity in less than five minutes. It's June 27, 1990, in the sleepy suburban neighborhood known as College Hills in Glendale, California. It's another hot day with temperatures hovering in the triple digits. 13-year-old Jennifer Raggio is home babysitting on Foxkirk Drive. So mom and dad had asked my sister and I to stay home with the triplets for the week and babysit them. The triplets were 12 years younger than us, two boys and a girl, Peter, Andrew, and Katie. It's like running a daycare. I literally prayed to God asking for one kid at a time. I did. I prayed the rest of my life. I did not want multiples. (laughs) That afternoon, Jennifer and her sister had finally put the babies down for a nap. Here's Jennifer's twin, Christina Raggio. I just remember the babies were asleep. My sister... I was taking a shower at the time, and everything seemed okay. At some point, I remember smelling smoke. I went outside, and I remember seeing smoke up above the hill, and I thought, that's weird. It was like white smoke and just a very strong smell. Christina came in and yelled that there was a fire. Christina has always been a little dramatic. Okay, sis, whatever. I took a peek outside the window and I noticed uh, it looked pretty orange outside and dark. I also noticed that there were some very large embers landing on the deck outside. My dad got a hold of us and I was on the phone with him. Our parents were telling us, don't panic. Fire's on the other side of the freeway. Wait till the firemen evacuate you. Something is becoming more urgent in my stomach. My dad said, well, just 
you know, get the stroller ready. So I, I got the stroller ready. I opened the garage and the whole thing filled up with white smoke. And I was in a panic and I saw flames across our driveway. I ran inside. And so I'm on the phone with my dad. Christina suddenly comes running back inside and she's screaming at me, we have to go now. Christina came and took the phone out of my hand and she slammed the receiver down on my dad. I thought, well, if Christina's putting her foot down, then this must be bad. <laughs> we were bearing the responsibility of taking care of these three babies. We had to put the fear away and at least one of us was gonna have to go into some kind of autopilot mode and start moving. We gathered the triplets up together, put them in the stroller, got our dog. We literally left on our bare feet. Looking up from the garage, that mountain right there was on fire. It was right there at our house. And, and I know this sounds stupid to talk about this, but there was a moment where I saw an angel up in the fire, and I thought it was my great-grandmother. And she looked at me and she, she said to me in a very stern or firm voice, run. I'm Carrie Antholis. This is Firebug. Fire investigators tell Action News tonight that the blaze is suspicious in its origin. Two of them bang bang one day after another. Whoever did this knew what they were doing. I'm gonna set this fire and just see how good these guys are. John told me, I think a fireman's light these up. A bunch of country bumpkins, they can't catch me. Catch me if you can. I don't believe in coincidences. The most prolific arsonist of the 20th century. This guy's not gonna stop. Firebugs don't stop. Chapter Four, College Hills. The temperature was about 112 degrees, and I was in a shady area in a cul-de-sac uh, finishing up paperwork. This is arson investigator John Orr. You might remember from episode two that Orr was tracking a serial arsonist in Glendale. I heard a police officer come up on the police radio saying there was a fire uh, along Rudiger Road in the College Hills area. Five, engine 23, bus fire, Rudiger, south of Mountain, attack three assignment, attack three, 1525. It took four or five minutes for me to get there, traveling at about 50, 60 miles per hour on surface streets. Less than a half a mile from the location, I saw that the fire and the smoke were being kept against the ground by the Santa Ana winds. It was hugging the hillsides like a fog. There were at least three engine companies on scene reporting that several homes were on fire, so I knew they were going to be needing help immediately. My first response was to get into the firefighting mode. I went ahead and jumped up on a roof and I put a couple of those fires out with garden hoses. There was another civilian there that was putting out a shingle fire on a garage uh, nearby and we kind of waved at each other and coughing and sputtering because there was so much smoke in the area. This is the 
Battalion 2, go. Yeah, it has jumped over our location. It is now going up the ridge, Chief. This looks like it's going to burn all the way to the freeway. The Inferno jumped the highway, rushing like a freight train towards Jennifer and Christina Raggio's house. We ran to the end of that driveway, which seemed so much longer than it usually does. And I've got Andrew, and I've got him straddled in my arm, trying to get our dog, Sarah, and Sarah won't go. So I've got this 16-month-old in one arm and a big, giant golden retriever in the other arm, and I'm 13 years old. We heard an explosion. The air conditioning had caused our roof to explode. We just kept running. I just remember hearing the sirens, but we just kept trying to push that stroller up the hill, and nobody would help us. It was a terrifying smell of, of everything around you that was burning, and you were going to have to get out of there or you were going to die. Mixed in with all of the rolls of black smoke was ashes and soot. It was very hard to see through everything. And the kids' eyes were already filling with ashes. We saw a radio car, so we ran up to him, and we said, where do we go? What do we do? He said, there's nowhere for you to go. So he said, I guess go over to this house over here. I remember going into the entryway into someone's house, and it was like marble. And I just remember feeling the coldness on our feet. It just felt like a relief. We didn't realize that our feet were burned. As we're standing there, we're all watching the smoke continuing to billow in. We're starting to see the flames getting closer. All of a sudden, we see it looks like a wave come rolling up. The radio guy came running towards us and told us to run. We didn't know where we were going to go. We just knew we had to run. We were terrified. And somebody took our picture, and I thought, what in the world? And we asked them, can you help us? Took our picture and walked away. Christina and I kept running. And we got to the top of the street, and there was a, a blue a station wagon sitting at the top of the street. And uh, I recognized her. She was one of our neighbors that I've babysat for. And so she put us in her car. We had the babies on our laps. Christina sat in the front seat, and she looked back at me, and she said, Jen, look at your feet. We had huge blisters on the bottoms of our feet, and they hurt like hell. I think if we were, had waited another minute, we would have been trapped somehow. And I'm just glad to have listened to my voice <laughs> or that instinct. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Within a couple of hours, crews had gotten control of the College Hills fire. It was time for arson investigator John Orr to take charge of the investigation and find the point of origin. I got down on my hands and knees and traced the area of origin of the fire to maybe about a five foot by five foot square. There was a lot of remains of light grass and uh, some trash, burned plastics and that sort of thing in the area. I found very little other than the remains of several plastic butane lighters. I had heard that uh, it's possible to lock open a butane lighter and uh, have the flame continue, and it could be used to throw out of a car window or something. So I seized whatever evidence was there, and that was the only thing in the area. I remember getting off the freeway, I'm on a surface street, and I think I went through two different roadblocks. This is California Fire Marshal Moses Gomez. He showed up to help John Orr with the investigation. As I'm driving past the second roadblock, I can see John at the back of his SUV. I greet him, hey John, how you doing? He then shows me the device he found in the fire scene. So I said, okay, so where'd you find it? And he said, well, I found it right over there. It was an apartment building to my right, and then just to the north of the apartment building was this kind of grassy, brushy area, and that's where John said that the fire had started. The area is protected by yellow tape, so I go up to the yellow tape and try to see as much as I can. So I'm trying to get a better look, and I'm actually touching the tape trying to inch my way closer without breaking the tape. I was never invited into his fire scene. Took it all in and said, okay, why is this fire starting here? There's no electrical, there's no other appliances, there's nothing other than someone came by and started this fire. Orr invited Gomez to take a ride with him to survey the damage. As we move through it, then you can see houses that are just starting to burn. Saw a fire engine over here, a couple of firefighters, you know, trying to uh, put this fire out, and we're running over fire hoses. As we go over them, it's like a, a speed bump, you know, you're bumping all over the place, and one house is already, you know, three quarters of the way burnt. Uh, you know, he would stop, and we would look at the fire, and I'm thinking, why are we here? This doesn't help us as a fire investigator. And really, we are more a hindrance than we're helping. We're just in the way. At the base of the hills, the Glendale Fire Department and police set up a command post. When I arrived at the command post, it was frenzied. It is a small city abuzz with personnel, equipment, news, media people who have arrived 
and waiting to be given an assignment to where to go to help out. This is Glendale Police Detective Bob Masucci. He was assigned the job of evacuating the area. And College Hills is steep, narrowing streets, one way in, one way out, which made another nightmare for people trying to evacuate. I remember being in the back of a pickup truck and this lady with long black and graying hair came up to the side of the pickup truck and she said, officer, can I talk to you? I saw who started this fire. And at that point I gave her my full and undivided attention. I said, I said, okay, wait right here. I jumped down from the truck and I ran to find John. By then, John Orr and Moses Gomez had returned to the command post. I told him, John, I have a lady over here who saw who started the fire. He brushed me off saying, okay, just uh, you know, go ahead and interview her. I said, John, no. I said, this is your responsibility. You come talk to her. He and I went back and forth and I realized he was busy, but my thoughts are, if she saw something, he's gonna to wanna to talk to her firsthand. Eventually, Orrin Gomez went to talk to the witness. I thought, now we're going. <laughs> Let's put this baby in gear. I went upstairs to her apartment and was introduced to her. The lady was in her bathroom uh, at the time she made the observation and her, her small window looked directly up the Vertigo Road. I just said, ma'am, we're not trying to embarrass you. I would like you to recreate everything you did in the bathroom. I think she even told me, I pulled my underwear down, I sat down on the toilet, I peed, and as I was getting up, I looked out my bathroom window and I could see a man. She had observed a man get out of the car and walk directly into the knee-high dried grass in that area. And I believe she gave a description of dark hair, 5'9", 5'10", I don't know. But she could never see his face. While Gomez was listening and taking notes, Orr had his eye on their witness. The lady was acting bizarrely in that she had kind of a, a stilting structure to her sentences. She looked to be what we call a 5150, a borderline mental condition. I didn't feel confident in what she was saying or her motivation. So now we're done with that interview. We leave, we get back to the command post. I think at that point, it's already getting dark. The command post trailer was lit up by the lights from television camera crews. My boss came to the door and I told him that uh, potentially it, it's arson. And at that point, I looked down and found a boom mic from one of the local uh, TV stations. I just turned around and said, what the fuck are you people doing here? Get the fuck away. First she said, oh, I don't have time for this. You know, I, I've got nothing to say. And then he just turned right around and gave him what he knew, which was highly unusual for me as an investigator. It's an ideal situation for an arsonist to set a fire and have it done successfully. Investigators found a butane lighter along the side of a road and say arsonists often wait for hot, dry weather to act. ABC News, Los Angeles. Now he's telling the arsonists what we know. I'm thinking, well, we really haven't done a whole lot here. So I tell John, I'll be here tomorrow and tell me what you need. And I can have like 50 investigators here by tomorrow. He just said, nope, don't need any help. I got it. 
and I'm kind of like looking at him going, uh, what? <laughs> I said, are you sure about that? I says, because I could be here first thing in the morning and let's get after this thing. He goes, nope, got it. We're good. I'm good. That's when I started saying to myself, there's something wrong here with John's abilities as a investigator to uncover things and get to the truth. He was terrible. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. We had found out later that Mom had showed up on Foxkirk trying to find us. Hours after they'd fled their home, Jennifer Raggio and her sister Christina still hadn't reunited with their parents. She asked for where us kids were, and the firefighters told her that either we died in the fire or we got out, but they didn't know. Somehow, my dad got on the line. I must have been our neighbor. And so I just remember him never hearing my dad really cry. He was relieved to hear our voices. He thought he had lost all five of us kids. He thought we'd all died in the fire. Yeah. Yeah, you don't... You don't think that it's gonna still affect you, but... Such a long time ago. It sometimes gets just buried in there. You don't talk about it, you know, as a kid. You just thank God, like... By the time the College Hills fire was out, it had destroyed or damaged 67 homes, 71 fire companies, five helicopters, and 250 firefighters had been deployed to fight the fire. It was a miracle that no one died, but families lost pets, heirlooms, and photos they could never get back. And as for the Raggio twins... We showed up a few days later on the front page of the Pasadena Star News with our ugly crying faces and the triplets. For a while, people called us heroes, you know, for saving the triplets. We never saw it that way. Today, a devastating rash of fires fueled by erratic winds, a withering heat wave, four years of severe drought, not to mention arsonists. Despite the I remember we kept asking our dad, have you heard anything? Have you heard who started it? I wanted this person to know the damage that they did. I wanted this person to understand the impact that they had on all these people's lives. They almost killed this whole family, these five children, babies. I, I wanted this person to understand the, you know, the, the stupidity of whatever they had done. But I also wanted to know why more than anything. Why would you do something like this? You know, why would you do this to all these people? There was a possible answer to that question in points of origin. 
As sirens overcame the traffic noises on Foothill Boulevard, Aaron got into his car and pulled to a dark side of the parking lot. Two engines raced by, followed by a ladder truck. Aaron took a long swallow from his beer and sat back. The mini mall's parking lot was dark and gave him an ideal location to watch his fire. More engines sped by and Aaron's excitement increased. His arousal quickly overcame him as he finally saw the tips of flames reach the top of the canyon. He finished the first beer and threw the empty can to the passenger floorboard. His hands now free, he rubbed his erection and closed his legs tightly together. Next week on Firebug, a major break in the case. I have a hit on your fingerprint. Yields a suspect no one expected. I sat down on the curb. Kind of just a complete shock. Firebug is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. It was created in association with Crime Story Media. This episode of Firebug was produced by Michelle Lands with help from Ryan Swikert, Neil Donatia, and W. Harry Fortuna. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. Story editing by Mark Smerling. Carrie Antholis, that's me, is your host and executive producer. Kevin Shepard and Alessandro Santoro are associate producers. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Michael Blumenfeld did the mix. Sound design by Michael Blumenfeld, Kenny Kusiak, and Michelle Lanz. Music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, and Marmoset. Voice acting by Levi Petrie. Our title track is Young Men Dead by Black Angels. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, find us on Twitter, at Firebug Podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening. <laughs>